We are continuing in a series that's a little unusual in, in terms of how I normally preach, but I hope it's been helpful. It has been a series on the Old Testament history books, and now we're looking at what in the English Bible are four books, uh, but in the Hebrew Bible are two books, but very long books. So we are going to look at these four or two books today, and I'm going to read part of chapter 1 to get us into the historical context of 1st Kings. Hear the word of the Lord. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king might be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber, Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king and said, and the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord, your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he is not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance. And he has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live king Adonijah. 
But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on king David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the fallacies about reporting on events is that there is some sort of way to report just the facts. That is, a neutral approach to history that just reports what happened without any slant, without any bias, without any perspective that might shape the reporting of those facts. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as neutral history. Uh, This is evident if you look at different news outlets. And to amuse myself, and sometimes to distress myself, when something happens in the world, I'll look online at different outlets. And it's being blared as the, the very first thing and the most important thing. And then you go to another news site with another slant, and it either doesn't appear or the, the perspective is completely different on what happened. What's going on there? Well, um, we could just say that they're, they're all biased, and they are all biased, and they're all slanting the news, but in the best of situations, they're giving different perspectives. Think about this. How many Gospels are there? There are four. And there we have four different Gospel authors all talking about the same events. Uh, they all have an agenda. They all have an audience. They all have a, a place where they're writing. They all have a year they're writing and a, a different year in each of their cases. And so we get four different perspectives 
on the same events. All of them are accurate. So in the best of cases, we get a, a fuller view of what's happening instead of a contradictory view of what's happening. That's what we have in the Gospels. In the Old Testament, we have a similar situation. We have what we call First and Second Samuel, then we have First and Second Kings, then we have First and Second Chronicles, and there is, is much overlapping of history especially 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then that overlaps with 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And we will find, as we are reading these, that they have different perspectives, and they present the same facts in different ways. And you could say, as some critics of the Bible do, well, these are contradictory. But they're really not. They're like the Gospels. Each of them gives a different facet. Why? Because the author of Kings and the author of Chronicles had different purposes, and they were writing in different places to different audiences at different times. And uh, in order to in order to help you to read Kings and Chronicles, before we get into the text, let me just talk about some of these differences, okay? Some of the differences, and I think as you read through Kings and Chronicles, that you will be able to have a, a, a more understanding of what's going on if you note these differences. Kings begins with David in his old age and ends with the exile in Babylon. I'll explain the exile in a little when we get toward the end of this uh, this sermon, but ends with the exile in Babylon, whereas Chronicles goes back a bit farther. Chronicles goes back to Adam. So actually, in some sense, Chronicles covers Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua Judges, and same. It covers all of the prehistory. And that's why it starts with the census of all the prehistory of Israel. Uh, Kings focused on the promised blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. You remember in Deuteronomy, there were blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And it focuses on those, and it shows how those were born out in the life of uh, Israel. Chronicles has uh, an emphasis on immediate retribution. So if somebody does something wrong, boom, immediately something happens. Whereas in Kings, it's focusing more corporately on the nation. In Chronicles, it's focusing more on the individual. If the individual sins, boom, something happens to him. Kings includes all the kings of Israel and Judah. And we're going to talk about Israel and Judah, the separate kingdoms. Whereas Chronicles isn't so interested in those kings of Israel. He's only interested in the kings of Judah. A kings evaluates all the kings on the basis of two things. Did they walk in the ways of their father David, and did they get rid of the high places? Now, the high places were, were the pagans worshipped on all the hills. And God had required in Deuteronomy that they worshipped in one central place. So all of the kings uh, in the book of Kings are evaluated. Did they walk in the ways of King David, and did they have centralized worship where God chose, or did they allow worship to happen on all these pagan uh, high places all over the land? Whereas Chronicles, uh, it evaluates people on their personal piety, their personal devotion to the Lord. Okay? Uh, a few more. Um, Kings exposes the sins of David and Solomon, whereas Chronicles passes over them. Do you remember the story about David and Bathsheba? Shows up in Kings, but doesn't show up in Chronicles. Just passes right over it. Doesn't mention it. Doesn't mention the sins of Solomon either. But rather, it presents David and Solomon as a golden 
era, a golden era. Um, Kings emphasizes the separation of ten tribes from the two tribes. We'll see this in a little bit. Ten tribes from the two tribes. Whereas Chronicles kind of ignores the the ten tribes uh, that were separated and emphasizes that a remnant from all those ten ten tribes joined into the two tribes. So they're, they're emphasizing that really all the twelve tribes are still together because there's a remnant from all the ten tribes. Another difference. Kings was written during the exile in Babylon, and Chronicles was written after the return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the last one. Kings, and this is, this is, this is the, if, if, if this is a, if this has been a little bit complicated, just hold on to this one, okay? Kings was written to explain what went wrong. What went wrong. And Chronicles was written to give hope for the future. So that's the different perspective, and that can help you understand why David and Solomon, a golden age, he's presenting an ideal sort of situation to give hope for the future. So, Kings answers the question, what? What went wrong? Chronicles is giving them hope for the future. Okay, good. Now, let's get into the text here. We have, after David, we have the transition to Solomon. And as we just read in 1 Kings chapter 1, the transition was not smooth and it was not bloodless. But it continued what we saw last week, or two weeks ago, when I was last here. We saw the, the familial strife in the family of David. You remember that God said that the sword would never depart from the family of David? Well, even in the transition from David to the next ruler, there was family strife between Solomon and Adonijah. And Solomon wins out and eventually puts Adonijah to death. Uh, in the beginning of Solomon's reign, we see the seeds of his greatness, and we see the seeds of his downfall. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 3. And we see here the seeds of his greatness and the seeds of his downfall. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. There we see the seeds, two seeds of his downfall. What were they? That he loved foreign women, and he married one, and we'll see that he married more later, and he was allowing sacrifices to happen where? On the high places. But the author says, well, there was no centralized place yet, so we'll kind of give him a pass on that one. Then we have, in chapter or verse 3, the seeds of his greatness. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And it says, and he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Now what happens at Gibeon, the Lord appears to him. And the Lord says, ask whatever you want. And Solomon says, I am but a child. And so I ask for wisdom. And the Lord was pleased with that. And He says, because you have not asked for the death of your enemies, you haven't asked for riches, you haven't asked for fame, you've asked for wisdom, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you wisdom, and I'll throw in, in addition, wealth and fame and power. And that's exactly what happened. So here we have the the seeds of Solomon's greatness, that he asked for wisdom from the Lord, and he reigned wisely. And if we look at his reign, it was the most glorious reign of any of the kings. 
the, the borders of Israel were extended in all directions. Uh, the, Jerusalem was built up. Uh, and his grandest achievement, his grandest achievement was the building of the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember back at the end of Exodus, they built the, they built the tent, the tabernacle, and the Lord filled it. Now we have a repetition, but it's more permanent. We have the building of the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord fills it with his presence. And uh, that's where the, the priests offered their sacrifice in that central place that God had indicated. Now, tragically, at the end of his life, he turned from the Lord. He turned from the Lord. This is mentioned only in Kings, not in Chronicles. If you look at chapter 11, and if you put your finger in two places, if you look at chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Solomon loved what? Solomon loved the Lord. And then if you go ahead to chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And here's the contradiction in Solomon's life. Solomon loved the Lord, and Solomon loved foreign women. And we see, if we keep reading, it says, Many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Do the math. How many? A thousand women. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. You see, that's the the contradiction in the life of of Solomon. He loved the Lord, and he loved foreign women. He loved the Lord, and he loved that which would destroy him. But see, that's that's the the contradiction in in all believers, isn't it? That's the challenge in all believers, isn't it? We love the Lord, and then we have this tendency to love things that will bring about our own destruction. And in Solomon's case, it did bring about his own destruction. Destruction, this central contradiction. And so, let's keep reading in verse 9 of chapter 11. What happened? And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant." Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away, tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So what's the punishment? God is going to take the kingdom away from Solomon, leave him one tribe, and he's not going to do it in his day. He's going to do it in the day of his son. Well, his son was named Rehoboam. And uh, we meet Rehoboam 
in chapter 12. And Rehoboam's first official act, first official act, was to lose 10 of the 12 tribes. That's what he did. Because the people went to him and said, King Rehoboam, your father Solomon was really hard on us. The taxes were really high. He really pushed us. That, that glory of the kingdom came at a price, and we were that price. He was hard on us. Will you lighten up on us? And Rehoboam consulted the elders, and they said, listen to him. Listen to the people. Tell them that you will lighten up on them. And then he went to his pals. He went to the young men with whom he had grown up, and he consulted the young bucks and said, what should I do? The people say that I should lighten their burden. They said, no, tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And he said, he disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions. Yeah, you can imagine how that went over, right? And so, he goes back to them and says, I'm going to make it harder on you. And there was a servant of Solomon who had rebelled against Solomon. His name was Jeroboam. Okay, follow the names here. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Jeroboam, the rebellious servant of Solomon. Jeroboam hears this speech that Rehoboam gives and says, let's go. And ten of the tribes follow Jeroboam. So, Rehoboam's first official act is to divide the kingdom losing ten of the twelve tribes. Jeroboam's official act was to plunge the ten tribes into idolatry. Let's read about this. This is in chapter 12, verses 25 and following. And it says this, Then Jeroboam built Shechem. You'll see what a good politician he was, by the way. Look at this. He built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Then it says, he also made temples on what? High places, and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And so he plunged the ten tribes into idolatry. That was his first act. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Let me now just summarize some. What we have is the United Kingdom. There were three kings. There was Saul, David, and Solomon. And from then on, we have the divided kingdom. And in the divided kingdom, the ten northern tribes kept the name Israel, and the two southern tribes had the name of Judah. They were Judah and Benjamin together. So, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Here's a summary. The... Northern Kingdom lasted 208 years and had 20 kings. 20 kings. So if you divide 200 by 20, 208 by 20, you get roughly 10 years on average for those kings. Now, these kings, only nine of them died natural deaths. Only nine of them died natural deaths. Nine were assassinated. One died in battle, and one uh, killed himself, committed suicide in battle. So it was a very unstable reign, 
And it wasn't a dynasty. It wasn't a dynasty passed from family to family because another family would intervene and kill the king and then his uh, his descendants would reign a little bit maybe and then somebody would kill him and then a new dynasty and a new dynasty. Very unstable. In the south, the kingdom of Judah lasted 344 years. 344 years and had 20 monarchs. So here if we do the math again, if you divide 344 by 20, you get roughly 17. And so these were, this was a more stable. And all of them, all of the kings were descended from David. So this was a dynasty. Except for one, there was one who was an interloper and a usurper, and that was a queen. That was Athaliah. So she intervened, almost extinguished the line of David. Killed all the sons, except for one, and so it was hanging by a thread, but then eventually she was overthrown, and the, the uh, dynasty of David was established again. Now, uh, if you picked up one of these sheets when you came in, you have a scorecard. And what we're going to do here is keep score. Okay? Um, on the right-hand side, in the right-hand column, you have the kings of Israel. On the left-hand column, you have the kings of Judah. So let's keep score. And this is the score according to the, uh, the author of Kings, okay? And the author of Kings judged according to two things. If they walked in the ways of their father, David, and if they got rid of the high places, okay? That's, that's the standard, okay? Um, and then, uh, let's start with, um, let's start with the Northern Kingdom, okay? That's on the right hand side. Jeroboam the first. And you can just put in there G or B for good or bad. Alright? G or B. Uh, the, the, the kings of Israel. The northern kingdom. Jeroboam the first. Bad. Nadab. Bad. Basha. Bad. Elah. Bad. Zimri. Bad. Tibni. Bad. Omri. Bad. Ahab. Bad. Ahaziah. Bad. Joram bad, Jehu bad, Jehoahaz bad, Jehoash bad, Jeroboam the second bad, Zechariah bad, Shalom bad, Menachem bad, Pekahiah bad, Pekah bad, Hoshea bad. Are you seeing a pattern? They're all bad. Because every single one of them walked in the ways of Jeroboam the first who caused Israel to sin, they did not remove those two calf idols but they continued to worship there. At the end of Hosea's reign, at the end of Hosea's reign, Assyria showed up. Assyria was the reigning superpower, and Assyria came and destroyed the capital city of Samaria and took those ten tribes and sent them into exile, but it dispersed them and it caused them to intermarry with other peoples. And so the ten tribes became mestizos. They became mixed-race people. And they never were constituted again as ten tribes. In the New Testament, they show up, and they're called what? Samaritans. The Samaritans of the New Testament are the mixed-race tribes of these ten tribes that were dispersed. Now, ready for the scorecard for the southern kingdom? Starts with Rehoboam, bad. Abijah, bad. Asa, good. But there's an asterisk beside his name because he did not remove the high places. But other than that, he was good. He walked in the ways of his father David, but he didn't remove the high places. Jehoshaphat, good. But he didn't remove the high places. 
Jehoram bad, Ahaziah bad, Athaliah, that was the queen, bad, Joash good, but he didn't remove the high places, Amaziah good, but he didn't remove the high places, Azariah good, but he didn't remove the high places, Jotham good, but he didn't remove the high places, Ahaz bad, Hezekiah good, guess what? He removed the high places. Number 13, finally. He was followed by Manasseh. Bad. It says actually worse than all of them that came before. His son Ammon. Bad. Josiah. Good. And guess what? He removed the high places that had been rebuilt. Then we have Jehoahaz was bad. He was captured and carried off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was bad. He was installed as a puppet of Egypt and later dominated by Babylon. Think about where Judah was located between these two warring superpowers. And then uh, Jehoiachin, he was bad. He was captured and carried away to Babylon. And during his day, Jerusalem was sacked, but not destroyed. Then Zedekiah, bad. He was captured and carried off to Babylon Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Okay, Um, Kings. Why was Kings written? Kings was written, as we said, to explain what went wrong. What went wrong. You see, the people were questioning and saying, why are we here in exile? It was written during the exile. The kings was written during the exile, and, and the people were saying, why are we here? Didn't God promise that a son of David would always reign on the throne? Didn't God promise that he would live in Jerusalem forever? That he would establish his presence there? Why did God not keep his promises? That was the question of the people. And the author wrote this book to say, it wasn't God who failed. It wasn't God who didn't keep his promises. Let's go all the way to 2 Kings chapter 17. And here we have the explanation of why this book was written. Chapter 17, verse 7 of 2 Kings. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves what? High places in all their towns... From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophet. But they would not listen. 
but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them and that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until He had cast them out of His sight. So, did God fail to keep His promises? Is that why they were in that difficult situation? What had gone wrong? Well, He says what had gone wrong. The people had turned away from Him. That's what had gone wrong. And the lesson is that if something goes wrong, we ought not to blame God for not keeping His promises. If there is a fault, the fault is not with God. And in this case, the fault was clearly with the people. However, I want you to look at the last verses of 2 Kings, and then we're going to go to the last verses of 2 Chronicles. Because there's a little bit of good news. There's a little bit of hope at the end of these books. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. It says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table for his allowance, and for his allowance a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So what's the final little ray of light at the end of Second Kings? What is it? There is still a son of David alive. He's not on the throne but at least he's been released from prison and he's sitting at the table of the king of Babylon. The king has raised him up. And that's how the book ends. Now, Second Chronicles takes it a step further. Takes it a step further and ends in this way. If you go to Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. Because it's written later, so it has more information. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, by the way, Persia sacked Babylon and took over after Babylon. So this is later, obviously. Now, in the first year of the Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may the Lord His God be with Him. Let Him go up. 
So this takes it a step further. Now Cyrus, a later king, says, you're released. All of you can go back to Jerusalem and the Lord has entrusted me to rebuild His house. So at the end of Kings, a king in the line of David is raised up. At the end of Chronicles, there is hope that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt again. And that's how the story ends. But it doesn't quite end because there are a couple more books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that continue what happened after they got back to Jerusalem from the exile. But that's for next week. So be sure to come back because next week you get the rest of the story. And actually, next week will probably end the history of uh, the Old Testament. Now, um, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with all this? And what importance does it have for us? Well, at the end of what we've seen today, we have no king uh, in the line of David reigning, even though God promised that one would. And we have uh, Jerusalem and the temple in rubble. Uh, no temple presence there. And we might ask the question also, like they were asking in Kings, what happened? And what is going to happen with the promises that God promised to David and promised regarding his temple? And the answer is this, but it's an answer we don't get in the Old Testament. The Old Testament stops short of giving us the final answer. The answer is this, God did something bigger than was expected. You see, the people were just expecting some king of David or some son of David to take up the throne in Jerusalem and start reigning again like he had reigned in the past. And that is the expectation that we find when we get to the New Testament. But we find that God's answer is actually bigger and better and more spectacular. And listen to this. One of my professors used to say, if God does more, he has not done less. If God does more, He has not done less. If He has promised one thing, and He far exceeds expectations, He has not failed to keep His promise. He has amplified His promise, and that's what He did. And that's what we have in this announcement that we read, that's often read at Christmas time, in the sixth month from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of... David. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, not for an average of 10 years, not for 17 years. It says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the answer. That's how God fulfilled his promise, by sending his own son. But when his own son came... We didn't recognize Him. The people didn't recognize Him. Because they thought that that the Son of David would come to kill His enemies, as the old kings had done. And they were surprised. And they didn't recognize Him. 
when He came rather to be killed by His enemies. But God raised Him from the dead. And He not only raised Him from the dead, He seated Him above all authority and power and dominion and gave Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We didn't recognize Him because first He had to take the path of the cross and be buried and then God exalted Him to the throne of His Father David to reign forever and ever. What about the temple? Well, I don't want to spoil next week because we're going to look at the rebuilding of the temple next week. But I will jump ahead a little bit and say God has done something more. He's not done something less. Instead of just one centralized place for people to worship, now God is worshipped not on high places of a pagan nature. He's worshipped wherever people gather in the name of Jesus. That's where His temple is. This is where the temple of God is. We are, the New Testament says, the temple of the living God. We who name the name of Christ. We who gather in His name. This is where His Holy Spirit dwells. And now, if you'll think about the kings and what they were supposed to do, they were supposed to say, come here to a central place and worship. But King Jesus has reversed this. And He has said, now, all of you who are mine, go out to the nations. Go out and take this message to all of the nations. Do you recall at the beginning of Acts, they were still confused about, about what the plan was. In Acts chapter 1, so when they had come together, Jesus was risen. He had appeared to His people, His disciples. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they were still thinking in small terms about some little kingdom in the Middle East. And Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, including such far away and insignificant places in the world scheme as Pompano Beach, Florida. That's right. Even this far, we've been sent and somebody brought the Gospel all the way here. Somebody was obedient to be witnesses all the way to this place. You see, King Jesus is not just saying, come to one central place. He's saying to us, go. Go to every place and wherever you go, take this message with you. Take this message that the King has come, that the King has died, that the King has risen, that the King reigns, and that the King is coming again. How is the church going to grow in our day? How is our young church going to grow in this way? If we, all of us, will, will receive this commission from King Jesus and take the Gospel wherever we go, into our places of work, into our schools, into the places where we do business, into our neighborhoods, into our streets, and announce that the King has come. The King has died for those who will trust in Him. The King has been raised from the dead. 
He reigns now and forevermore, and He's coming again. Let's invite the nations, let's invite the neighbors to bow the knee before King Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that this history connects with us, that we are living in the fulfillment of the promises And we stand as children of the promises. And we walk by faith and not by sight. Even as we sang earlier today. We thank You that all the promises that You have made in Your Word are yea and amen in Jesus. We thank You that He is the Son of David reigning forever. We thank You that You are building Your temple all over the world this day. And even in this place. And we pray, O God, that You would be pleased to use each one of us who name the name of Christ to take this great and glorious message to our neighbors and to the nations that the King has come and died and risen and reigns and is coming again for all who will trust in Him. And we pray this in His name. Amen.